Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. When people praise you, don't let it go to your head. When they criticize you, don't let it go to your heart. Was once said by Cecil Rhodes, the British businessman, politician, and founder of the prestigious Rhodes Scholarship. Our guest today is a Rhodes Scholar, who once captained the Australian Junior Davis Cup team. He went on to become a pioneer of Australian corporate finance in his career as an actuary, investment banker, company director, and chairman of a number of boards. Our guest is Ian Pollard, chairman of RGA Reinsurance Company of Australia and director of the Milton Corporation and the Wentworth Group of Concerned Scientists. He was previously the chairman of Billabong International and managing director of the Development Finance Corporation, the first investment bank in Sydney. Ian is also an executive coach and the author of books on corporate finance and human capital. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this episode, we cover the insights and experiences of someone who has been involved with senior management and boards from a young age, being thrust into his first director role at the age of 25, to the trials and tribulations of being a chair in a crisis, and the near-death experience for the iconic brand Billabong. Ian shows us what it takes to make it through the other side, and the value of mental spinach. So sit back and enjoy Down the Line. Ian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. I'm not even sure where to start. You've had a quite a remarkable career. Rhodes Scholar, international tennis player, actuary, managing director, board director, chair as well as an author of a number of books, and now an executive coach. What was it like and how did you get the Rhodes Scholarship? I uh, got the Rhodes Scholarship. Uh, I was 20 and uh, I had a deep interest in becoming a statistician, an academic as a statistician. And uh, given my deep interest in that, I took my university studies very seriously, um, happened to excel at those and applied for a scholarship to go to study at Oxford. The Rhodes Scholarship at the time was um, certainly the premier scholarship available and one really of very few for going to study overseas. Today, there are many, many different scholarships, which is wonderful uh, for the today's generation. But in those days, there weren't many. So I applied for the scholarship and happened to be successful. Yeah, but you've got to be, don't you have to be a half-decent sportsman as well? 
these days, no, but these days you have to have um, something significant beyond your focus on your academic pursuits, but mm-hmm. it could be something social, could be something musical, could be uh, something in the sporting arena or in politics. But uh, in those days, uh, there was actually a there were four criteria in Cecil Rhodes's will, and one of them had a specific reference to manly sports. Yeah, okay. And those were the days when only men or boys could apply for this scholarship. And you seriously count tennis as a manly sport, do you? I did, yes. And you were what and at the do. time? Were you uh, captain of the Australian Junior Davis Cup team, is that correct? I was, yes, and a member of the Davis Cup squad. So this is what, at age 20, 21, was it? Uh, when I was in the Davis Cup squad and so on, I was 18. But when I, I won the scholarship, it was the following year. I was actually 19 at the, that time. And am I right in reading during your younger days, you played probably one of the greatest of all time, Mr. Beyond Borg? Yes, yes, uh, I did. Uh well, we don't get that every day of the week. Went to America to play uh, um, for Australia in the Junior Davis Cup, and we were very embarrassed when, in the first round, we lost to Sweden. I don't think any Australian tennis team had ever lost to Sweden at that time, but we managed to achieve that indignity. I didn't know the significance of the young bloke, and he, and he was younger than yeah. we were, uh, on the other side of the net, but he was a formidable opponent. How was his temperament in those days? Because it was, it was uh, a little bit later that it became ice cool, wasn't it? Uh, he was already um, uh, very, very disciplined, yeah. 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 Okay. And a very, a very lovely young bloke. What's the lasting impression of someone who has the opportunity to study at Oxford? Uh, my lasting impression is of just a wonderful environment for having fun, for meeting people from all around the world, from for discussing a wide range of subjects and uh, for you know, playing sport. And so on. the interesting thing about, about Oxford was in those days, certainly doing the course I did, I had to go to maybe two lectures or three lectures a week, an hour or two of tutorials, and the rest of the time was mine. And we only had three eight-week terms. Wow. So basically, tons and tons of seemingly free time um, but you had to be disciplined a lot in teaching yourself, which is something I happen to have learned at a young age. And what, what were you reading at the time? I was reading mathematics with a pure mathematics, but with a bias towards statistics and probability. And what makes someone get so fascinated in that end? Uh, I happen to come from a family where father and three older brothers are all actuaries and statisticians. Are you serious? And, and, <laughs> yes. My father was a bit like the um, father or godfather of the actuarial profession in Australia. Oh, really? He, he founded the uh, school at Macquarie for actuarial students, and it was the first university course for actuaries in the world that was recognised by the London Institute of Actuaries. And so that was significant. So for whatever reason, I just sort of fell into this um, environment, and I'm sure there is something genetic in it. You finished university and commenced a career in being an actuary or what took place Um, next? I I finished both uh, my studies at Oxford and my qualifications as an actuary and I was intending to go down the path of of, uh, becoming an academic as a statistician. Mm -hmm. But uh, just one night, 
happened to be after rugby training at Macquarie University, and I was in the bar and whatever. And I so you got a personality, and you're, and you're an actuary, and you're a tennis player. Uh, what was the first bit of personality? I'm not. I'm not so sure about that. But uh, enough to have been a member of, and proud member of the Macquarie Uni Rugby Club. And I found that I was at the bar after this night of training, and I thought my heart actually. I could tell my heart wasn't in a direction that I'd actually been following for about seven or eight years. Right. And so that night I decided, okay, from tomorrow I'm going to look for a job somewhere using my actuarial qualifications and and so on. So I started uh, looking at opportunities and that was 1977. And that's in the beginning of the, what, infancy of investment banking? Uh Sort of. The group that I ended up joining was actually Sydney's first investment bank. Yeah. It was called Development Finance Corporation. It was formed in 1953 by Sir John Marks, and that was the year I was born. So it wasn't quite in its infancy, yeah. uh, but he was the probably the doyen of that industry, certainly through the 60s and uh, into the 70s. And, and so I had the pleasure of working closely with him. And you, what, uh, many years later became managing director of that firm? I did. Uh, in the interim, uh, sadly, Sir John died. Yep. And we were taken over by ANZ Bank. Oh, okay. And uh, so when I became managing director of it, it was already a wholly owned subsidiary of ANZ. And you're also an entrepreneur, aren't you? Didn't you go out and start another business a little bit later on? I did with with ANZ and DFC's help yep. and... and uh, Partly because of my roles there, I founded a company um, which later became known as DCA Group, mm -hmm. uh, but at the time uh, we called it Development Capital of Australia, which was basically a uh, vehicle for doing private equity type yeah. uh, investments of which we built up a few over, over a period of years. We listed the vehicle and it, it ended up being an ASX 100 company. So you were one of... You're one of the founders, were you? Yes, yeah. I definitely. I was. I was. Uh, I was probably the person who who uh, was most involved in that. But interesting. I, I uh, the first person I approached about being involved with it yeah. was a chap whose background was as an electrician and a plumber, and. Uh, but an experienced public company director yeah. who brought all sorts of different skills that I had uh, no real perception of. And so we put together a board of people uh, who had uh, diverse skills yeah. and complementary skills and then started looking for uh, opportunities to uh, make serious long-term investments. We weren't there to just... Um, buy something, turn it around and move it on in, uh, say, three to five years. So this is one of the very early um, plays in private equity in Australia? I guess it, it was in a way, yeah. It was unusual in being through a listed listed vehicle. So you strike me as someone who can't sit still. Uh, no, I can't sit still and I'm getting better and better at it as, as the years go by. Okay, but also in reading your summary bit about you doing my homework, you're not a bad writer either, are you? I love uh, writing and and uh, the clarity of thought yeah. that that brings. And uh, I've written a number of books over the years. And one of the things that is interesting to me about writing books yeah. is that most people, I suspect, think that you actually need to know the subject in perfect detail before you would even have the courage to write a book. But it's actually 
somewhat on the contrary in that the beauty of the exercise and the challenge of writing a book is to say to yourself, is to just follow your nose through a logical thinking process, looking for other sources, etc. So I'll give you an example of uh, in, in the when I first started work in this industry of, of corporate finance, yeah. there was nothing that was published. And I thought, oh, I'll write a paper for the Institute of Actuaries, which I ended up calling Trends in Corporate Finance. And it was just about, well, what are the deals and concepts and things that people in this somewhat fledgling industry are doing out there? And I put these things together in a little book that was about 110 pages as a paper for the Institute, but I ended up getting contacted by the Securities Institute saying, hey, um, can we please use your thing for the course because there's just been nothing before and so on. So I ended up writing um, three books on corporate finance in the 80s. But what was significant about it was I actually started that process less than a year after start, about a year after starting work, when I saw a deal which is the most uh, magnificent outcome I've ever seen in a transaction and not not total surprise. It happened to involve Westfield. Oh, yeah, right. And Westfield had um, – they announced the reconstruction of the group, so from being one company that did all the operations and owned the properties and whatever, yep. to spin off a thing called the Westfield Property Trust. And it was the first one of those reconstructions that were done. Now, what was amazing to me about this transaction was suddenly the shareholder of the original bits of paper ended up with bits of paper worth three times the amount as as valued by the market Mm -hmm. and got distributions eight times per annum what they had previously been receiving. And I looked at this and I thought, this is incredible. This seems to me what business is about. And... So I spent the next eight or ten years just uh, looking for, you know, what are the transactions, whether they be management of assets, management of capital, management of liabilities, reconstructions of groups, ways of doing things tax-wise or partnerships, whatever it might be, whereby CEOs and boards are seriously adding material value for Shareholders, and I ended up publishing that book in in uh, about eighty eight, just after the crash. Mm-hmm. Now, it ha- I interviewed a lot of people for it, and they were very open about uh, what they were doing and so on. Um, but what was interesting then was to look back and see, well, okay, this one continued to be a great success post the nineteen eighty seven crash, and this one didn't so much, and so on. But I um, I started with no knowledge, basically. And but over a period of uh, X years, just because of you know committed process of of looking for interesting things, and uh, so for those who happen to be listening, who are deeply interested in a subject, uh, don't feel you have to be the expert before you start writing the book. And that effectively became the Bible at one stage, didn't they? Those three books on corporate finance. Uh, certainly, they all had their different roles. The third one was one where. Um, Two others who were editors of a collection of works by right. papers by a whole lot of people in the industry, and yep. it had stalled. And when I published that first paper, they said, "Hey, would you mind joining us to just let's get this exercise finished?" And that book ended up going into five 
editions <laughs> really? over the years, and it was the standard. It was more a textbook. My other two were um, had a different style. So you've um, you're a sportsman, an academic. You're now an author. Uh, you're an MD. You're an entrepreneur, and then you start building this new career in the boardroom. What what made you really want to focus in the boardroom? Um, one aspect is. Uh, I just have always had a love of the building of companies. Mm -hmm. And second aspect is from where I started work at DFC, Mm -hmm. it actually had a significant portfolio of um, investments in other businesses. Some of them were um, listed companies. For example, it had an enormous... Uh, by our, by our size, um, investment in Brambles oh, yeah. because Sir John had actually floated the company in the fifties, uh, organised the joint venture that involved Chep and DFC was involved in that. Yep. Um, I ended up selling that investment on behalf of DFC in nineteen eighty seven, but it had been put together in nineteen fifty five or six or something in the first place. So like that's a thirty year relationship and holding period and so on. And so I worked for this group that was not just a financial group, but also was a long-term investor in things and so became involved sitting on the boards of companies where it had an investment. And and the first one of those I happened to be chairman of and Sir John basically asked me to do that so I could get some experience of being a chairman. I knew nothing about it, to be quite honest. And it was the board was three of us, me and two 23-year-old entrepreneurs from the eastern suburbs. 23? They were 23 and I think I was 25 or 26. And uh, the experienced guy then. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I was the experienced guy. But we, we had a lot of fun. They particularly had a lot of fun with this business, which... Uh, produced the world's best musical synthesizer Mm -hmm. for a period of about 10 years and uh, sold it in many, many countries. And, um, yeah, they were wonderful guys to work with. But unfortunately, the the business ultimately didn't survive in that form. But great experience. Speaking of great experiences, you've been through a few wars and, and back, haven't you? I have been through a few wars. I've been a probably been a director or chairman of 10 listed companies that have been taken over, um, two class actions uh, and and a range of other fairly unusual experiences. But um, that's all part of the challenge, part of the experience and something that's inevitable. The moment you have a – well, if if you're only involved with one business – there's a pretty good chance you're going to go through a fair bit of um, ups and downs and whatever anyway. But if you're involved in a range of different things over a period of 40 years, you can imagine the um, the probability of disasters and near disasters can be quite high. So trials and tribulations, which comes to mind, one is, um, I guess, the, the iconic brand Billabong, um, which was on a pretty much a near-death experience. Yes. Do you want to sort of share with our listeners some of the – you know, some of the calls you had to make and where the business was at and some of the big decisions that you and the team arrived at? That's a very, very long story because in the sense it's a business that started way back in 1973 mm-hmm. um, and a wonderful brand yeah, and always a wonderful brand. Yeah. And I think one of the things I'd emphasise is that the problems 
were not so much with the brand itself. Um, right through, you know, the worst of the times you might have read in the paper uh, about Billabong going through challenges, yeah. people might have said, oh, the challenge is because 15-year-old Freddie won't wear Billabong if his old man who's bit chubby and whatever, whatever, is wearing billabong. Um, I've never been convinced that that's been the core issue in any way whatsoever. Um, the, the core issues were really related to the group as a whole. Okay. And the structure and the financing and decisions made over a long period. And the business went really, really well till, I'm guessing, about 2005. And then after that point, there started to be a um, shift in the power in the various channels to the market. So, for example, you had the local surf shops yep. where um, brand authenticity and all these things were absolutely fundamental. Then you had the emergence of – and I've got to say, in that market, Billabong has always been a great brand, mm -hmm. number one in Australia and America for – for years and years, I think, um, and often both men's and women's. But what happened was a lot of the shops were starting to consolidate into um, shopping centre-based chains and things like that. Yeah. And initially those were built up off the back of selling Quicksilver and Rip Curl and Billabong and Hurley and a couple of other yep. brands. Yep. But over time they needed to switch to selling their own product so they could get both the you know the manufacturing margin and the retail margin to make a bob right and so suddenly the dynamics of distribution of product had changed materially and as i understand it billabong responded to that by saying well we need to start to control some of that distribution ourselves right and in that process started to buy well, first they bought a number of other brands, a number of other really good brands. Yep. Um, and secondly, they um, bought this sort of channel to market of multi-brand retail. So think of surf, dive and ski in Australia, for yep. example. Yep. N not easy businesses, not with brilliant economics and so on. But I think it would be fair to say that Billabong at the time did not – they weren't retail experts. They had some stores with the Billabong brand on them, but uh, they didn't have experience in this particular sector. Um, arguably um, overpaid, didn't necessarily manage the transition well, and a lot of it was funded with debt. Right. And combining those three, it put a lot of strain on the business's financial position. Okay having also bought these other brands and so on. So um, when I joined the board, which was October of 2012, it was already stretched and had started to sell some of its uh, some of these other brands. And did you know the state of affairs before you joined? Uh, I, I did. I, I, they said to me, well, look, you're our preferred candidate and yep. I don't know whether it was a list of one or a <laughs> list of, of how many. And uh, I did uh, what I'd have to say is the most extensive due diligence that I'd done other than for a company which I was maybe floating in earlier days in my career. Yeah. And uh, I couldn't get it to add up. I couldn't, definitely couldn't get it to add up and I went 
uh, back to them and I, I said, look, um, I can't work this out. I think I've really got to say no, but thank you for thinking of me, etc." All right. And then we had a chat over the phone and um, I said, look, I'll, I'll give it some thought overnight. And I don't know whether it was because I was out at a celebration somewhere celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Wentworth group, which is something else I'm involved in. And uh, I thought about it overnight and I thought, well, for a lot of these things where the problem I'd had was one question wouldn't lead to an answer, it'd lead to two other questions. Yeah, that was yeah, a, right. it, it's, that overstates it, but it was yeah. that type of thing. I just couldn't get my mind around it. And then overnight I thought, this is an, you know, it's a significant Australian company. It has a collection of significant brands. It's got X thousand employees. And for a lot of these negatives, I can see a potential opportunity on the other side. Let's give it a go. So I rang, rang them back the next day and said, yeah, let's, um, okay, let's go for it and, and so on. And how long was it before you became chair? I became chair straight after the AGM, which was probably a few weeks after that. Wow. Yeah. I didn't, you know, I joined the board and became chair at the same, same time. time. Yep. And five minutes after that meeting started, um, our uh, American chief who'd run the American business for 14 years said, oh, and, and was a director, said, oh, by the way, guys, I'd like to organise a bid for the company. And that was uh, five minutes after I'd, I'd signed up as chairman. I thought, well, what do I do here? I've got no clear experience of that. But it started a period of um, deep uncertainty for the company, which went on for almost a year. Were you an expert in retail or was you, you by your background, as you say, in the investments, had a pretty good understanding of you could get the, your head around the actual model very quickly? Or I'm not an expert in retail, but I had spent four years on the board of Just Group, yep. um, including uh, a, a reasonable period as chairman yep. and had had some earlier or so. I was on the board of OPSM for 11 years. Saw that, yeah. Um, so I had had well, some. Well, some experience in retail. Uh, yes, but uh, I wouldn't claim to be an expert in it at all. Okay, you're not a merchandiser, but you certainly can understand the business model. I, I can understand the business model or have a pretty good idea what questions to ask or who to ask. So was the easy play then to sell to that person in the US? Uh, it would be if a, an offer actually um, emerged, but we had two offerors, both of whom sort of wandered on and didn't come to a conclusion about formalising the bid. So they were offers that were um, significant enough or non-contingent enough that we announced them publicly, yep. but uh, neither came to fruition. They just dragged on. There seemed to be no pressure for either of them to deal, and I think both of them were just waiting and waiting for the company to come undone, um, come undone, etc. Yeah. So, what was Plan A and what was Plan B then, Ian? Um, I can't even remember now. We had a hundred board meetings in a year. Is that right? Yeah, and. Uh, that probably most of them had a plan A and a plan B um, and we ended up uh, in, in a situation where um, at I, I think what was the thing that actually triggered things to happen was an experience I'd never struck before. Mm -hmm. About nine months into that period, just suddenly one day we learned that um, our bankers had started selling their debt to third parties, non-banks, yeah, right. 
and uh, at somewhere between 82 cents and 95 cents in the dollar. I think the, that's the sort of range. So that says, you know, you're in some you're in trouble, deep whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and those – And have lost confidence. And have lost confidence yeah. or too hard or something. Yeah. And what was significant there was um, this did actually finally trigger some action. So we had – the parties who who turned out had bought that debt were Oak Tree and Centrebridge, who are two big American private equity private equity distressed debt mm. type firms. They'd both bought the equity um, independently, but then they got together and uh, um, spoke with us about a potential deal, and that then prompted one of the other two parties not the one associated with our former executive but the other one, an American group called Altamont, to actually uh, to fund us so we could repay the debt to the others. Then we ended up with a very messy period of um, uh, with uh, things being heard through the takeovers panel yeah. as, as to whether there'd been sort of unusual behaviour, which I won't w- worry with the detail because I'll struggle to get it all accurate. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, at the end of the day, we uh, ended up with the fortunate situation of two parties each actually saying, hey, we want this asset. Yeah. Whereas until then, we had no conviction that the people really had the potential to love this asset. Yeah, okay. And then we got to that point and uh, we ended up having a choice and we exercised the choice to go with Oak Tree and Centrebridge uh, who um, offered the better money aspect of it, which was really important, yep. and also brought along a very good chief executive in Neil Fisk. So that's a shortened version of uh, a nine-month period. Toughest nine months of your career? Uh, probably. Prob- certainly in the context of one company. At the same time, I was chairman of another company, which was uh, going through an equally challenging situation in a totally different industry, but it fortunately had a very big US parent that was the best in its field and so on. So that makes it easier when you've got, um, when you're part of a bigger group and don't have to be reporting to the ASX every day of the week as to, you know, what the latest development is and and so on. So what were the learnings? Because you had to make some pretty big calls during that time. Yeah, what were the learnings? Um, I'm trying to think of any one that absolutely jumps to mind. I, th- well, I think, well, I think well, yeah. well, you, had to make, you had to make some decisions, right? Yes. And some of them weren't easy, would not have been easy decisions. One of the learnings is to be absolutely clear on what your responsibilities are and to whom. Yeah. It's the first one. Second is you're in an environment where you really know who is pulling their weight yeah. and who has the um, interests of the company at heart and will work whatever is necessary to do it, uh, to achieve whatever the goal is. And the third part is it's great to be in bed with people you can trust yeah. and it's horrible when you're in bed with people you, who you can't trust and or dealing with people who you can't trust. And last one... I think the biggest single thing I take out of all the period with Billabong Mm -hmm. is the enormous pleasure that a number of the senior people in the organisation got from seeing how some of our young people 
uh, just lifted their experience curve, their handling of situations they'd never dealt with before and really, really grew through this and um, stuck with us through a, a pretty difficult five-and-a-half-year period, to be frank, yeah. So what makes a good board director now, Ian? You've got, you've got experience? Um, what do you look for as a chair? Well, a good board director... Uh, Relevant skills has to be a start, but they don't have to be an ex- – you don't want everybody around the table being a perfect expert in retail or in life insurance or whatever it is, yeah. but relevant skills, complementary skills to the others around the table, um, a generally supportive perspective in the way they build relationships and work with teams and obviously the management in particular – People who who you know can you you can confide in, uh, and that you will get an objective answer from. People who are prepared to ask both the tough questions and also the questions where they may look like they're silly or didn't know the you know the silly question where it looks like oh maybe they hadn't done their homework or haven't had ten years experience in the industry or they're the sorts of characteristics and then the key is to have an environment around the table where there's some unanimity of purpose, Mm -hmm. clarity of that purpose and uh, a nature of engagement where you try to focus as much time as you can on the issues which um, are the most significant and that's very difficult. It's getting harder and harder to do that but there's a, there is some sort of skill in, in, um, bringing those things to the fore in agendas of meetings and so on. Why is it so hard to bring those things to the fore during this agenda of meetings? Because as a chair, well, how do you encourage listeners or talkers? What, where, do you, where do you focus? There are two questions in there, I think, Greg. Just dealing with the first one, how do you bring the issues to the fore? Yeah. I think step one is, is for the CEO and the chair of the board to get together and have some um, – agreement as to, well, we've got this board meeting, it's a great opportunity for us to help each other. Now, what are the core things we've just got to make sure we discuss? And um, sometimes those can be drowned out when you've got results announcements and the things that go with that. But for the more normal board meetings, it's a great opportunity to reach some consensus about what really matters here. So we all get these vast collections of paper but the core question is so what you know what out of all these papers actually um, is most important which leads then to the other question which is about the balance between I think was about the balance between listening and speaking Mm. and I suppose step one is um, to recognise that the let's say six or seven of you that constitute the board, including the CFO, or the, the, there are six, say, non-executive directors, they're going to be sitting around there for three hours. Most of the time, they'll be expecting answers or reports or whatever from the management, and so that'll occupy, say, two hours of it. Okay. So split equally between the six of you, not at this point allowing for the extra weight of the chair who's got to control this and lead this bunch in some direction. Uh, It's 10 minutes each. And so to me, the fundamental thing for a a good performance by a director and above all, a good contribution is for, for the director to have 
read all the papers, number one. But there's a second step, which is having read all the papers, then say, so what? What is really material here? And what do I feel strongly enough about or that I can make a significant contribution to that I'm going to choose that subject and this one over here to definitely be a speaker? And for most of the rest, I'll be a listener or something like that. And based on your experience, those who are commencing their board career, does it take them time to settle in? Like, is there a pace to pick up, or you know, are you, you know, how am I pacing with the chair? What am I? When do I come in? And when do I not come in? Uh, I think a lot, a lot depends on that. Uh, in that, because you're the conductor. Yes, you're the conductor as the chair. But a key bit is the induction process the person has been through, the quality of the papers, um, the person who is the chair making it very clear, um, even if it isn't necessarily obvious, that, hey, Joe or Helen, um, we wouldn't have invited you to join this board if we didn't value deeply what you're going to contribute. Don't feel too intimidated by that, but just feel that from day one, we look forward to hearing from you. And in particular, a bunch of fresh eyes uh, can actually be incredibly helpful. There's a bit of a debate out there in between the more experienced directors and the advent and particularly the last decade or so of the professional director. Not the not the retired executive who's then going to move into uh, directorships, but the the younger generation taking the, uh, the opportunity to say I'd like to have a, a board career earlier and I'm in my forties and even and even younger than that. What are your thoughts around that? First, from the individual's point of view, mm -hmm. even though it was what I did, I had a portfolio career virtually most of my working life, mm. I wouldn't today encourage anybody to do that. I think it's just so hard being a um, director of listed companies, for example, and we can come back to that as a separate yeah, subject, interesting subject too. but yeah. um, I... I feel it a pity for somebody who's now embarking on that career compared with what it it was uh, 15, 20 years ago. Now, there are very good reasons for all the things that have been done that influence the comment I've just made. Mm. But one of the effects of it is you can probably have less um, board roles and do them properly. You um, will spend more time unfortunately, on compliance-related things yep. than on adding value-type things. Mm -hmm. But you know, where that balance lies will vary from company to company. Um, and I don't think it's going to be as much fun as it was. And yeah. at the end of the day, we've yeah, all got responsibilities better. and we've got to take those seriously. But at the end of the day, we like to do something that's fun and I just think it's a harder road forward for the individual. But it can still be a great career because you're involved with a range of different businesses. Um, it's exciting seeing them grow. But I think if you have, say, a portfolio of four or five directorships in the past, it might have been that um, one was having serious problems, three or four were were good fun, you're working with well and collegiately with the team and, and, you know, you're building value and so on. I think it's just so much harder, particularly in this environment of um, 
of such rapid growth, disruption to business models, uh, etc. So that's from the point of view of the individual. From the point of view of the company, um, it, it just depends on where the business is at in its cycle. But above all, you don't want a whole lot of people, all of whom are ex-CEOs, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you do want diversity of perspectives, diversity of way of thinking, diversity of experience, diversity of skills. I was speaking to a um, pretty well-known chief executive uh, on the weekend who's been tapped on the shoulder to consider a number of roles in the boardroom uh, on ASX-listed companies and just doesn't want to be considered. Is that the way it's going? Uh, I think it is. I I, um, know enough people in that position that uh, sadly that is the case. And it's the case because of the governance, the case of you're reading a thousand pages every month. Well, it, I, and, you know, I know you said there's it, a lack of fun, but on the other side, there's a lot of people knocking on our doors as a search firm saying, please, you know, please consider me for the next opportunity in you know, that next board search yes. that you have. Yeah. Um, so there, there uh, are still and, and um, will always be a good cohort of people um, keen to take on non-executive directorships, but equally I can understand why somebody who has um, had a very successful career as a CEO uh, probably is already fully independently wealthy and certainly doesn't have to work, um, why they and, – and, and probably has the opportunity to be involved as a director of private equity deals and contexts might say, well, do I – really need to um, head down a direction where I'm going to be uh, involved in and exposed to just so much more um, uh, public scrutiny in a context that uh, in some respects these days is not a level playing field because you're subject to so much second guessing from different uh, directions, whether it be legally, regulatory, uh, proxy advisors, disgruntled shareholders, and most of the people in a lot of those roles have never actually run a business. Yeah, that's right. And so... Um, so as a shareholder, it's a bit alarming. Well, that those people are having such a strong say, you yeah. mean, in the... Potentially, yes. Because their influence is so significant. Yeah. So what does the board community do about it? You know, it seems to be a bit of a push and a bit of a shove and we all fall over. I think uh, we're dependent on a greater level of rationality in in um, lawmaking. We are dependent on AICD, Australian Institute of Company Directors, for example, mm. to use uh, their best efforts to influence the way the uh, legal and regulatory environments affect it. But some of these things are beyond um, just the regulatory environment there. The short-term expectations in the market, if you think of a private equity environment, they buy a business, they don't have to report to anybody, at least read their financial results and things related to value of the business at any point for until the time when they wish to float it or sell it Mm. and or merge it or something like that. Uh, Whereas as a listed company, you are... um, having to do that on an ongoing basis and it reduces the degrees of freedom with which you, you can operate your strategy. What's your thoughts to those chief execs then sitting in the listed environment? What's the obstacles they face? 
oh, those who are currently CEOs mm. of listed companies, mm. well, they've got, they've got big challenges because uh, somehow or other they've got to um, rationalise their time as to how they can focus on the priorities they've got um, they can't spend their whole life on investor relations and reporting and so on. But uh, in my experience, many CEOs of listed companies would automatically lose every year um, two to three weeks twice a year on roadshows yeah. and things like that. Now, yeah. they will learn things from engaging with uh, international shareholders and whatever, but um, they just have to get the best support around them so they can focus on, on the main event. So where's your time going to be spent? Are you going to be looking more for the private equity opportunities? I'm probably looking to lead a relatively unrushed life as a grandfather and with uh, some ongoing corporate involvement. So I'm still chairman of RGA Reinsurance uh, and a director of Milton Corporation, but I'm not currently looking for a, a specific you know, listed board or whatever. Um, I've been doing it for... 40, I've been doing this role for 40 years and I think at some point you've got to say, well, like so many people are keen to do these roles and I'm sure are younger and more capable of making a tangible contribution than I am at this point. So I, you know, I'm moving on to other things of interest. Ian, as a private equity investor and chairman, did you see yourself as, as a mentor or as a coach? I think in that environment, uh, principally as a mentor, um, but perhaps a, as a coach as well. Mm. And I think the, the to clarify what I see as the difference between those two roles, yes. I think the coach asks questions more than giving answers and the mentor tends to give answers more. And I like the coaching type of way because it empowers the person who is being coached to build the confidence that they can get to the right answers themselves if they spend a bit of time reflecting and thinking, you know, more widely about something or talking to somebody, but they're not dependent on some external person giving them the answers. It's always nice if you can, but I think it's far more empowering for the person to find it out for themselves. Now, back to the private equity situations and, and being a uh, chair in those or any other situations, I think it's an important aspect of the chair to CEO relationship to have one which is an ongoing feedback one, an ongoing review of how meetings have gone or having a CEO feedback how they think their discussions with their leadership team on subject X have gone or with an external party or something or other. So um, there are great opportunities as a chair to really be a, a mentor or coach and reciprocally so. Like we all want feedback. There are no geniuses amongst us all. We've all got um, – we're, we're put in great learning environments because they're significant hothouses, challenges always arising, and they're opportunities for us all to learn. But you've since built a, um, a reputation and a career as an executive coach? I've been uh, – I've had a, a career as an executive coach for 20 years. Yeah. I, I've I do that through an organisation called Foresight's Global Coaching yeah. run by Denise Fleming yeah. and uh, – 
I do that along with about 50 others who are ex-CEOs and so on around Australia and New Zealand, a little bit overseas, and I love it. I, I get a lot out of it. Any particular themes that you pick up on from CEOs in general? Yes, uh, well, there are um, quite a few standard themes. We, I, well, I've, I've coached a lot of CEOs and a lot of other C-suite executives or senior uh, partners of uh, professional services firms, for example. Yep. Some of the most common themes are, how the hell can I work out how to work less hours in the week? You know, how can I get some of my uh, life back? How can I get uh, time hey, where to Where do actually... I sign up? I'm sorry, what was that? Where do I sign where up? Where do you sign up, yeah. But so how do I do that? Yeah. How do I... Well, do they want to be coached to start with, Ian? Uh, yes, by the time I see them, Denise has already probably put them through the ringer. She's a very insightful, um, challenge, you know, a good challenger and, and whatever. And um, she will have, uh, if, 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 it's, if it's at the stage of me meeting with them yep. uh, to check whether the chemistry's right, yep. um, they will already be of the view that, yes, there's a value for them being coached. So the, the regular ones are uh, something or other to do with time management and balancing life and, and so on, um, the almost impossible one, but you can always <laughs> improve it. Uh, reporting relationships. So it might be CEO reporting to board. It might be if I was coaching a um, C-suite executive, how they engage with the, with the chief, mm-hmm. uh, how does the uh, CEO get the team dynamics right and some of the challenges in that, um, things to do with strategy or it varies widely. Uh, sometimes it might be a new CEO of a listed company and so someone who uh, has had lots of experience in the operational end of that business or that industry, but this is their first time reporting to a board, reporting to public shareholders, uh, dealing with the press, etc. And and so it's horses for courses. And for everybody, there's a developmental component. One of the things I personally focus on a lot is things to do with habits and mindsets because they are so powerful, because they have a sort of recurrent impact, the themes are many and varied. And did your coaching lead you to the the further writing, Ian? Uh, It did. Uh, It did in that um, coming home from a coaching assignment one day on the bus, I read a tiny little article in the Financial Review, uh, just one paragraph, and it said it was titled, Women Don't Ask. And then it had in it, Um, It said a new book, a new American book called Women Don't Ask says that the average US woman executive loses around 500,000 US dollars in accumulated savings over their career because of their reticence in salary negotiation. Those are almost the exact words. And I was reading that and I thought, wow. You know, 500,000, that's 20 years ago. 500,000, that's enormous. And then I thought about it. Now, this is where my actuarial mind came in, which is to say, well, why should I be surprised that that's a big number? Like if you're poor at negotiating every year for 35 years and you've got an annuity of that long plus 35 years of compound interest on the money, I'm surprised it's not even more than that. 
and and so that prompted me to ultimately draw an analogy which is between the way financial capital grows and the way our human capital and our social capital grow. Okay. So if, if you think of uh, the big, big drivers of financial capital, there are about five or six of them. doesn't matter whether it's from investments or whether it's in the growth of businesses. They all come from compounding of things, annuities of things, leverage, options, return for risk, and things like that. And an important one, the concept of opportunity loss and what leads to that. Now, what I did in a book called Investing in Your Life was to do a a, a very thorough, I'll call it a thesis as much as a a book, but it was a full fleshing out of that analogy between how financial capital grows and the fact that all of those same drivers are present in human and social capital growth. Like if you take the return for risk, well, it's having the courage to ask or having the uh, courage to, you could add many phrases after that. Yes. And that's what leads to opportunity. If you think of annuities, think of teach a man to fish and you feed him for the rest of your life. Yep. Or think of the impact of people's habits or mindsets. Those automatically have this recurrent thing. Or if you think of compounding, think of virtuous cycles in relationships where, you know, each time you go around the cycle, it just the um, learning gets stronger and the relationships get stronger. Say between a CEO and a CFO or a chairman and CEO, yep. um, if it's working right. Um, anyway, long thesis on that, and uh, that to me is is uh, along with the book that I've uh, published in the last year or two with my daughter Jess called yep. Mental Spinach, yep. which is relates to some of the same themes. That to me is the most important work I've done in my life. Mental Spinach. Oh, Mental and Spinach, it- and the previous bit. I really deeply believe in in the power of what's in that thesis because. It has the opportunity to expose to people how big the upside is in their personal growth. I think we underestimate how much impact we can have on our own growth and others' growth and consequently underinvest in it. Whereas in the financial stuff, we're mindful of it all but the time. Is that a confidence thing or what is that? Oh, part of it's a. Um, it's, it is in, in part a confidence thing because uh, things like um, putting investing time and energy and attention in your personal growth, uh, you will be more likely to do it if you had some success the last time you did it. So it is a confidence thing. Um, it's like if you're making cold calls and uh, the last three calls people whacked you over the head um, you're less likely to do it. But if you're starting to kick some goals, well, you'll invest more. How do you look at success and failure then? First of all, I think most people who are successful would would say, well, over the period of however many years, uh, don't worry, I've had many um, failures and what people might think of as failures, but they are fundamental to the journey and the, and the growth and the subsequent success. But I I like a particular model which says, well, 
failure, as some people think of it, is just a gap between your current vision and where you're currently at. So I'm, I'm not yet there yet. It, it emerges over time. And often other people have to uh, say to them, hey, Greg, uh, you're capable of big things. Don't underestimate what you can do. Yeah. I've got big confidence in you. Whatever, whatever it is that uh, says, yeah, I can, I can have a serious vision and um, aspire to it. So do you think as a, as, as, as a, as a bunch of people as an Australian – we talk it up or talk it down too much? Oh, I think we have a, a significant tendency to talk ourselves down or to, to hide our light under a bushel because we as Australians uh, tend to have some uh, objection to people who are a bit too forward about what they've achieved or, or something, whereas I think... Um, one of the great challenges, and I'm sure there are right and wrong ways to do these things, but it is to have the confidence to um, say, um, you know, what you believe in, what you think you can contribute to, and so on. And you must see that all the time with your um, with people you're interviewing. Absolutely. Um, how do you handle pressure? That's a great question. I guess the first bit is it probably varies depending on where the pressure is from. If the pressure is from something that is a very personal thing between people you're close to or um, personality-related things with you know, that, that are difficult, relationship things, I find that the hardest bit of pressure to deal with. 1972, mum and dad were driving through southern Germany and driving a Mini. They ended up being hit from behind by a Ford Transit van and their Mini sort of rolled down a hill and onto a railway line. Fortunately, no train came, but dad got out of this unscathed. They weren't wearing seatbelts. I think it was actually before the time it was compulsory. Uh, Mum was in terrible shape, including having virtually had her left wrist severed and... Um, somewhere, and this was 20 to 30 miles from the nearest town called Sigmaringen, somewhere out of nowhere, an ambulance appeared and, and um, they, the first aid people sort of saved mum's life there. They then got her to the hospital at Sigmaringen and a chap by the name of Dr. Raff uh, not only saved mum's life, but he also performed microsurgery on her severed, severed hand. The local doctor? A local doctor. He was a surgeon, but a local doctor in a small regional hospital. He had read about microsurgery in a book and uh, in, a, you know, in a research paper or medical journal or something, and uh, that's one thing. I think it's a, a deep message about continuous learning and so on. Uh, that was the first thing. The second was that he actually had the courage to try to save her hand when he had none of the right equipment, none of the right um, things to put inside. He actually apparently used something to do with the bone of an ox to put in, in there to stabilise it and so on. Um, I just think remarkable courage. And um, if I ever think about professionalism, uh, it doesn't matter what you're calling in life, I think of Dr. Raff automatically, yeah. 
So that was pressure. Yeah, and mum got another – that was serious pressure and mum got another 27 years use of that. It took three years for it to recover. And three years later, I, I went there with uh, her. He couldn't speak any English or whatever, um, and, but I could speak German, so I had a chat with him. And as soon as we walked in, he said the date of the operation. Wow. Can I ask, in summing up and examining people, how do you how do you test their ability? You know, how, what are the signs you look for? Is it you know there, there's a sometimes we as a headhunter you get told. We had the uh, walk the boardroom floor test. You know, someone's walking with that X factor, that gravitas. What do you What do you pick up quickly? The things that I pick up most quickly, or try to, are um, first of all, has this person done the homework? Because if they haven't done the homework for this, they won't have done the homework for the first board meeting they come to, or whatever. Second one is, do you get the feeling that this person is genuinely interested in the opportunity and the job? That Those are the first two for me. Then the third bit is um, about engagement and about and, – and it, it does reflect those two earlier points. Yeah. If, if people have ticked the first two boxes – there is a much better chance that they will be able to engage with you about the business, the industry, the types of issues, etc. And if you can't have an engaged conversation in that context, you probably won't. Um, they won't engage that well around the board table. Yep. Now, I've observed that in others. You know, when, when I've interviewed. You know, a dozen people for a particular role. Yep. But then when I made that observation of what a small percentage ticked both those two boxes, it then reminded me of a time where I had um, failed this engagement test badly by getting into negative issues, due diligence type issues about the business. Whereas you want somebody, for starters, around the table who is, is just absolutely excited about how are we going to build this business? What are the ideas that, you know, how do we protect it, uh, and, uh, and, you know, put a moat around it or whatever it is? So it, you know when you've got somebody who you, you can engage with. In examining pressure, first thing, how do you manage pressure? And secondly, can you sort of give us a few examples as a chair and enduring life, what's been some of the toughest calls you've had to make? Um, so first one, handling pressure is, uh, I think it helps to be as much up to date as you can be with all the other things that are going on in your life, particularly if you've got a portfolio existence, mm -hmm. that's the first, and, and to have some available capacity. And it's different for an executive where their whole focus is the one um, business but as a portfolio person, I think to have some spare capacity that uh, in time and so on that you can draw on, then to um, be sort of fit enough and getting enough exercise and fresh air and along with that the time to think and have people who you can talk to about things um, and, and, and share a common problem. One of, the, one of the things I've changed my view of quite strongly over the years is um, – I sort of got brought up to think that if something was confidential, well, you didn't tell anybody about it, et cetera, et cetera. 
And as a consequence, I can think of times in my life, both personally and corporately, where um, I haven't taken the opportunity to pick somebody's brain and bounce off them, hey, confidentially, I'm in the following situation, you know, any thoughts of what you'd do in that or, or whatever. So it depends on, on the circumstance. And in tough decisions? Tough decisions, um, understand the core principles of the context you're in, um, get the best advice you can, both professionally or privately, like I was alluding to a moment ago. Um, know who you can trust and rely on in the circumstances because you can't do it all on your own yep. and, and get uh, other people's view. And if it's a board situation, there is um, certainly not a shortage of people around the table and, and so on. And being objective, doing your best to be objective. Ian, I read you're uh, fairly focused on the environment. Yes, that's correct, yes. I've been on the board of the Wentworth Group of Concerned Scientists for a period of, must be 15 years or something like that. So what's the headlines we should take away from today? I guess my personal view is the, the sig most significant headline would be listen carefully to what our scientists are saying. And the most obvious application of that is in the... Uh, area of climate change and the ongoing debate that rages on, um, perhaps less so now, about is it really man-induced or is there a reasonable probability that it's man-induced? And I believe there is a more than reasonable probability it is man-induced and we cannot afford to ignore it. It's basically an existential type question for earth and the human race in my view and we have to take it more seriously than some people have taken it in the past and I think the sad bit about it is that because some people have so strongly ignored what the scientific community has been saying for so long it has then caused such deep polarization yeah. that um, people aren't actually talking about the solutions in, in, and don't, they feel they've got to go to an extreme to balance the other extreme and so on, whereas I think there's a lot of room for dialogue on that. But on the, on the environment, there are so many issues in Australia. Rewater, yeah, exactly. most obviously. Yep. Listen more to what our scientists are saying. Um, another, which the Prime Minister mentions, plastics in the sea. I'm delighted to hear him mention it. It is a vital... Is it all talk or is it actual action? Uh, I don't know which it is. I hope it's action. I am astonished how long it took this country to deal with the plastic bags, single-use plastic bags issue and the recycling of bottles. I think, I think it's a disgrace. I was recently in Kenya. You are not even allowed to bring into the country a single-use plastic bag. Is that right? Yes. Morocco, you, you don't see them anywhere. It's a cleaner environment in Morocco to me than we have here in, in, in many environments. Um, and basically, you may have seen the War on Waste series. Um, mm -hmm. you know, what we do with our waste and how we deal with the vast amounts of unnecessary packaging and bottled water in a city where the water is 
perfect. We need to follow the example set by Bunda Noon where they banned the things about 10 years ago. Like, I, I'm not a greenie. I just as as a I'm just a person who who uh, wanders around and is um, amazed by some of the things I see. And what is the Wentworth Society? You remember? It's the Wentworth Group of Concerned Scientists. is a uh, not for profit organisation which has for the last uh, it's about sixteen years brought together um, Australia's leading environmental scientists and has done a lot of work on uh, on water, on uh, land degradation, on climate change, and on also on very um, original, world-class work on how to actually account in, the, in a numerical sort of way for the quality of our environmental assets. Right. both on, on an individual property or in a municipality or a region or a river or whatever, but a, a group of um, eminent Australian scientists. Now, I'm not a scientist. I just happen to be a non-executive director. Ian, before we let you go today, are there any final pearls of wisdom you want to pass on to the audience out there? Uh, I think there, there's just one, Greg, which is uh, read Mental Spinach by Jess and Ian Pollard and uh, recommend it to all your friends. And uh, thank you, Greg, for having me along today. I've enjoyed this very much. Thanks again, Ian. And you've been listening to No Limitations. <laughs>